Welcome to this month's installment of Brass Chats, brought to you by Monster Oil. What is this? 21 year? Mr. Dillon, thanks for being here today. With it's us. my pleasure. Very happy to have you. Um, how the heck do you build one of the most successful music stores in the country? One brick at a time. <laughs> right off the bat. I mean, it's been over the years. I've been in this business, I like to tell people, mostly all my life. I, um, I started uh, in fourth grade playing the trombone. Matter of fact, right behind you is my first trombone. That's a Bundy that my mother bought for me in uh, the fourth grade. When I was in junior high school, uh, I traded two clarinets for a sousaphone and then traded the sousaphone for a helicon and another sousaphone in junior high school. So I've been doing this all my life. You've been trading up. You've been, you've been getting things for deals. You've been trading up, slowly building that collection <laughs> since middle school. L little by little, every year. The, the one thing that really did get me started was the book, Bands of America. I found this in the uh, high school library. And I took it out and I read about it. And basically what it's about is the uh, band movement in America. It talks about the Sousa Band and Arthur Pryor and all. And I started to say, well, who are these people? Who? It had talked about Herbert Clark. And just at that time, the ITG came out with the, uh, that Clark record. And I bought a copy of it. And I was like, man, this guy's great. And then I found uh, recordings of Arthur Pryor. So that's, really, that's what really got me started uh, down the road on a lot of the stuff. So is, is trombone really the vessel at which you were able to get your fix for these antique instruments, for trading instruments, for learning about manufacturers, all these things. Trombone is where I started. Uh, I did double on tuba in junior high school and high school. But trombone, um, at one point I had a collection, per my personal collection was about 250 trombones. I know it's a little insane, but we all have our vices. Uh, so before we get to walk around and see all of these great instruments and treasures that you have, uh, I want to know about how the business started really quickly. Uh, I heard it started in the house, in your house. Tubas and bathtubs, um, uh, trombones on couches. Uh, uh, yeah. What was it like starting out? Well, what it was, um, I got into the business, there was a gentleman named Bob Hazen who was dealing in antique instruments back in the uh, early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And he kind of got out of it. And I went to partnership at that time with a friend of mine, John Corzin, we were in school together, and we kind of did it together, and then John moved uh, out to the Midwest, and we kind of broke up, and that's how I really, I took over that mailing list of uh, people who were dealing in antique instruments, and I dealt in antique instruments well, uh, most of my life. I started in my mother's house, my mother wasn't too happy with uh, sousaphones in my bedroom and everything. <laughs> When I got married in 1988, my wife's, uh, she is an angel. She puts up with all of my uh, crap. Um, we, we moved into a townhouse, and there was, I figured out that you could put a sousaphone or a tuba in a corner because they, they'll stand up without having any props. So there was a sousaphone or tuba in every corner. There were saxophones in the guest bathroom, in the tub. There would be instruments all over the house. Sunday was packing day. That meant there was peanuts all over the house. So that happened till 1992 when I uh, was able to get the place I'm in now. So we've been here since 1992. And you start out with 
uh, purely antiques, is that right? Purely antiques. Okay. I dealt uh, dealt in antique. I, uh, over the years, I've sold some of the most major collections. I sold one collection. It was called the Benkovic Collection. It was, at that time, the largest collection of 19th century American brass held in private hands. So I've dealt in this stuff all my life. That doesn't mean I, I haven't dealt in new instruments. That's what, when we opened here, I knew that antiques is a very small, and used is a very small uh, um, market. So that's when I started to uh, deal in uh, new instruments. Okay. Well, I'd love to see some of these things. Let's uh, walk around, see some of your, uh, your best things, all right? Okay. All right, so Steve, please show us some of your uh, prized possessions. Okay. The first one I'm going to show you is an E-flat keyed bugle by, made by E.G. Wright of Boston, probably in the 1850s. Um, the interesting thing about this bugle is it shows that musicians forever have been adjusting their horns, doing customizations, because the instrument probably stored, started out as a nine-key bugle, and now it's much more. It has a case with it. And it has its owner's name on it. Let me take it out. It's copper with uh, brass trim. The the uh, may, or the uh, owner's name was William S. Wheaton of New York. And the interesting thing about the bugle is he blinged it out. Look. <laughs> He poured a little uh, uh, stones. Now we had these replaced because when I first got the instrument, it was missing its stones. So, but he had stones in there, and as you can see, he's had. If you look at it, he's had uh, keys extended, keys added. So it's a very interesting thing to see that musicians forever have been tweaking their instruments out to get them to play like they want to. That's great. Now, are these all just different crooks for different? Uh... Or different pipes for different keys, right? Well, different crooks for different keys and different, basically, tunings. And that day, there, were, uh, a, there wasn't a standard of tuning. So uh, sometimes you'd go on a gig and a, a band would be playing at A445 or A438. <laughs> so you had to have different shanks to be able to uh, uh, adapt with the band. Wow. Okay. That's really cool. So this is um, the E.G. Wright bugle, E-flat bugle. Now, did you have a date on... On this, this is a, a this is around the 1850s, 1850s. probably originally, and then uh, all these you know these were altered. It, it was altered uh, somewhere later on in its life. Very cool. Now whether he went back to the maker to have that done, or he had it done locally, we don't know. Now, this instrument is pretty rare. Now Dylan Music is the only one outside of the Ford Museum that has a mat well a set. This is made by um, Holin Quimby of Boston, and we have the valve trombone version of it. This is called a box valve instrument. Holin Quimby was a maker in Boston, all right, and he patented these valves in the 1870s. Let me take this apart to show it to you. And you can see the box valve mechanism. And what they were trying to do was get the wind way to go straight through the valves. See, they were experimenting back then. And yeah. it goes straight through the valves uh, without any turns. And this comes with its different um, tuning shanks. Again, back at that time, uh, a cornetist didn't just play in uh, B-flat. They would play B-flat, A, and G. 
This has its original case with it, which is interesting because the case, the top fell down, and someone had written in there, what's that, March 20th, 1880. 1880. Yeah. All right. So whether the case was made after the coronet, we don't know. But this is a very interesting coronet. Plays just like a regular coronet. Okay. <laughs> this is a very interesting instrument. This is made by Kahn of Elkhart, Indiana. This is gold-plated, and it's basically on the same concept of a double-bell euphonium. But the difference is, instead of the, a big bell, having a big bell and a small bell, these have two bells of the same size. There, are in, there were instruments of the time made, but in a different key than this, called echo horns. Now, what this does is, you have the regular three valves, and then you have the, the, uh, the fourth valve will activate this bell. So the, why it was made, I don't know. And this is the only one in this key I've ever seen. The interesting thing is you can basically, I can take and turn the bells <laughs> so I can play it in different angles. If you get mad at somebody in the section, you can just... Yeah. So, I mean, it probably was done more as a novelty thing. But um, it's based off, like I said, it's based off the, uh, the concept of the double bell euphonium or the echo cornets. You've seen those. Absolutely, yeah. This, you could put, you could put a mute in and you could have a muted bell. <laughs> but again, why this was made, I have no idea. This, um, this piece is an interesting piece. It's um, sent from a gentleman named Jake Burkle who was the head of the research and development at Khan, the model shop, as they called it. Uh, he was a very, very uh, famous man in his day for developing instruments, especially trombones. Matter of fact, Arthur Pryor's trombone, which I own, is engraved on the bell, made for Jake Burkle, or made for Arthur Pryor by Jake Burkle, 1894. Now, this is to show that we as musicians have always found some instruments no good. This is for, uh, uh, sent to a uh, Mr. Shine. He was the head of the New York branch of Khan, and, and it's dated 1936. It said, Dear Mr. Shine, I received the 8H trombone number 301305 made for Mr. Weeks, which was returned on account of bad intonation, which I thought was interesting because it's a trombone. I don't think trombones have bad intonation. <laughs> I have gone over this, and we found it bad. <laughs> so they're saying, yeah, it's bad. I mean, here's a con uh, advertising small pamphlet. This shows some of the band, famous bandmasters and instrumentalists who are playing con. Uh, Gilmore, John Philip Sousa, Levy. Levy, very, very famous coronetist. He was the best coronetist all the time, he said. Um, so this shows everything like that. Now, on the back, it shows a difficult passage. All right? So... In being of the humor of Khan, he wants to show another difficult passage, which is a, a young boy on the pot. And here they are selling this, the Wonder Solo Cornet. No wonder they're such a success. This horn, I sold um, Mel Bro uh, Broyles, principal trumpet of the Met, he, uh, his collection of instruments, and in it was this which Mel wanted me to keep for myself. This is the horn he performed that on. And here it is. This is one of many that he had. He had different ones, but Mel would perform. Yeah, of course, I, I can't pronounce the name. To make that clear, Mel Broyles played this. Played this. Performed this. 
at the Met. Yes. Zarathustra call. Yes. <laughs> and now we will demonstrate it here for you now so everybody can hear. <laughs> I'm holding it over. This is Joel Baruti, fine, fine travel player. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it that way. We have just been uh, contacted to sell nine instruments that were the private property of Vincent Bach. We were contacted uh, through an intermediary. Um, uh, Roy Hempley uh, set this up with uh, Bach's daughter. And these are nine instruments that were taken home by Bach for his personal collection that he was supposed to be going to give some to his daughter. We're not even quite sure. But in them are things that he personally picked out or were personal property of his. Some of them are brand new. We have a brand new Mount Vernon Bach that has never been played in the case. We have a brand new bass trumpet, never been used. We've got a brand new alto trumpet. We've got a brand new piccolo trumpet. We've got a, a, an engraved coronet. It's really an amazing thing, and they will be up for sale quite soon. But come, I'll show you some of them. All right, here's a Bach, Mount Vernon. It still has its, the case, how to uh, uh, tag on it, how to um, uh, care for the case. Brand new, Mount Vernon, 17,000 serial number. <laughs> Never been played. You want to break the seal right now? No. No. <laughs> Matter of fact, we're no, selling no, them no, without being no. played because we don't. This is an exact copy of a coronet that made, was made for Bach's daughter. They've retained that instrument. I've never seen a coronet like this before. This is coronet number 20,000. It has Egyptian engravings on it. And it's gold burnished in some of the engravings. That's so unexpected. Here's well, another one, a very early Bach. All right. Um, this is a silver-plated engraved Bach uh, from 1926. You're not kidding. The number is, is a 500 number. Yeah. The serial yeah. number is 500-something. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Good gracious. Now, this might have been used. We're not sure. But for whatever reason, Bach brought it home. It's in excellent condition, as you can see. And these, these are part of this collection of instruments. Uh, this is an 18,000 serial number. Large bore with a 72 bell. Okay? Wow. All right. For whatever reason, he brought this home. And it was kept. it's basically unused. So Bach decided that this trumpet was one that he wanted to have. For whatever reason. Yeah. For whatever reason. So, again, it's basically... And we have untouched them. We're not changing felts. We're not changing anything. This is how they came from Bach. Yeah. All right? The man himself. So, we have nine of these instruments that are going to be going up for sale. You're the first ones to see these outside of my crew here. This one's on consignment to me, and it's in B-flat. The other one I have is in E-flat. Now, there's stories behind these. The one in E-flat... Uh, which sits next to my desk, uh, was uh, I, I bought it off Mel Broyles. He had it for many years. Uh, 
And, and this one is on consignment to me. This is from a, a gentleman who wants me to sell it. These are called Orpheans. Okay? They're made by Boozy. All right? And these were made for a band here in the United States that was a predecessor of the Sousa Band. It was a band by the, uh, the name of the Gilmore Band, Patrick Gilmore. And he had a set of these made to be used with the band. So it was a quartet, or uh, I think it was a quartet that he had. And this is one of the B-flats. The E-flat is uh, the E-flat. The E-flat is the only one that Boozy ever made in that uh, key. There were two B-flats made. The other one, I believe, is in Australia. These are very unique instruments. They sound just like cornets, because I know I'm going to get that question. What do they sound like? They sound like cornets. So in the Bach collection, uh, this came down to me, and it says, Old 3C Trumpet Mouthpiece. Okay? Written in Vincent Bach's hand. Now, we measured it. It's the equivalent of a 6C, so you can tell that the Bach mouthpiece has changed over time. It is a New York Bach, but the interesting thing on it, that Bach kept it, it's stamped J. Alessi. Mm. Now, everybody knows Joe Alessi's, the current principal trombone in New York Philharmonic. This is either his father's or grandfather's mouth or mouthpiece. Mm -hmm. um, his father was a, a, a trumpet player in New York and played at the Met as did his grandfather. So we're not sure. Joe was just down here recently, looked at it. He thought maybe it was his grandfather's mouthpiece. There are a lot of people in a growing musical market. Um, you see more stores, you see more manufacturers, and just, just more people in general. Um, why do you think this is? Why is it happening? And how, how, uh, how or what, talk about what it takes to be successful in uh, the music retail market. What it takes to be successful is, at least what I look at, is a passion. You have to have a passion for our industry. We work in, in an industry. I've often said you can't, you can't run a musical instrument company by people who don't understand the musician's mind. You know, the musician's mind is different than the average consumer on the street. The musician has a, 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 a connection, a personal connection to the instrument they play. It's not just like a widget. You can't sell these at widgets as widgets. So to succeed, you must be passionate about that. I live, eat, drink music. Last time I went up, saw you was what, in Boston? What was I doing? I was researching an 18th century woodwind maker from Boston. That's passion. And that's, that's just something that you have to do in anything. But in the musical instrument world, passion coupled with uh, 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 the musician's mind and good business sense. Um. How have things changed? Uh, when you start out, it was 1992. Two. That was a time where you still had to log on to AOL. We didn't have and, AOL and in 92. It, right? That was 94. <laughs> well, I was born in 91. Give me some slack. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so in a time where you were doing lots of work in, I assume, catalogs. And, you, and we did mailing lists. Uh, it, it, uh, there was a lot more telephone it was a different world what has happened is we have seen a, a condensing of the manufacturers over the last 20 years 20 to 25 years condensing condensing remember at one point in time we had leblanc with all its makes we had uh selmer with all its makes we had umi which encompassed Kahn, king uh uh Benz and those they're all one now they're con selmer 
So you got rid of two makes right there. Are there still are there a lot more certain things on the market today? Yeah, it, it, there are. Uh, I had a conversation with a colleague re recently. We were at a conference, and he says, "Look how many people are here now." He says, "There's a lot more in a room than we ever saw before." I think that what why that is is, in some respects, in the old days, you didn't have time to do other things to make oils or mouthpieces or whatever. You were playing. That's gotten less over as time has come forward. Interesting. So, uh, so you've talked about how the business has changed. You've moved into a, uh, a large part of your uh, business is internet sales. Um, we do a fair amount in that, but we're still. You got to remember, internet sales to us. Uh, the internet is a tool to us. It's not the end all. Some places it's the end all. We still have people. We're musicians. I'll give you an example. Matthew, who handles my bighorns, the tubas. All right. Some days I'll walk past his desk and he'll be sitting there in front of his desk with the phone, with the tuba going, all right, this one's a little flat. Let me push the push slide in a little now. See, that A's in tune now. You don't get that over the internet. Now, they might have seen that instrument on the internet and decided to call in. You're talking to a person who understands them. What is your absolute favorite part of your job? You want my absolute favorite part? Yeah. Sitting around bullshitting about old horns. <laughs> That's what I do the best. You know, you're here today, and even before we started this, I went into a, look at this, look at that, look at that. I, I love that. I love that. And I love talking about the industry. I mean, just talking about where we've come and where we're going. So where do you see our industry going, your industry? What's our industry? Um... Here's the problem we have right now in our industry. And in our industry, number one, is uh, I call our side of the business, and my colleagues in the business call it the, uh, the band and orchestra side. I'm going to talk about acoustic instruments. When I talk about that, trumpets, trombones, and I'm only going to talk about it from what I deal in, the woodwinds and the brass. Until we get somebody in the public eye that is... Um, uh, a center figure, we will not grow. And let me clarify that. In the 1940s, we had Tommy Dorsey. We had Louis Armstrong. We had Glenn Miller. We had Jimmy Dorsey. To this day, and it's getting very rare anymore, I've had old gentlemen will come in, they'll bring their trombone and they'll put it up on the counter and they say, I want to sell it. You know, I'm 80-some years old. I want to get rid of my trombone and I'll open it up. I'll look inside, and it's a king to be. And I, I know the answer to the question, but I'll ask it. You've had this horn all your life? All my life. I said, why did you buy the king to be? Well, Tommy Dorsey played it. And until we get that happening, our industry will not grow. The other thing I see is we tend to pull our own house down. And this has happening, been happening for many, many years. Oh, I'm a classical musician. I'm much better than you than a jazz musician, and vice versa. You see what I'm saying? Instead of respecting each other, which we should do, we pull our own house down. Anybody who helps the cause of getting acoustic instruments in front of people has to be praised. I mean, there's many in our industry work very hard, and then they're saying, well, he's not a real jazz or classical player. It brings our house down. Of people like Wynton Marcellus, who's somebody who had made the transition from 
being a, a classic, prim, primarily classical turbo player, and now he's a primarily yeah. But again, he he really pushes things forward. He's probably one of the more uh, 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 what do I want to say? He's one of the more people in the forefront of of the instrument. We need people like him, and even more. Mm-hmm. To help push us forward. Yeah, he's not he's not a household name in the way that Doc Severinsen was. Certainly not Louis Armstrong. It's like, no, it's very different. It's know? very different. You know, it, it was very different because, like I said, when you talk about a, a, a Louis Armstrong, I mean, he he, he it, it wasn't just the uh, uh, the people who played trumpet who knew who he was. The fella in the street knew who he was. That's what we need if we want to grow our business. The fella in the street knowing. Oh, yeah. I know that guy. Yeah, he plays the horn. I love it. All right, Steve. This is called the Monster Round. A series of rapid-fire questions. Uh, try to answer them in as few words as possible. It's really quick. Favorite orchestral work? Favorite orchestral work? Yes, sir. Uh, does it have to be from a regular orchestra or an opera orchestra? Anything, yeah. Okay, Il Guarni Overture by Gomez. You'll never, nobody will even know what that is. No idea. That's yeah. Awesome. Uh, most expensive instrument you've ever bought? I'll say the most expensive instrument that we've sold through the store. We've sold three or four of those Yamaha tubas that cost in the $30,000 range. Uh, oldest instrument you've ever bought? I have in my collection, now this is a sidetrack, I have a collection, I have a collection of over 325 fifes at home, historic fifes. I know it's a sickness. Um, 325 fifes, I have one that dates probably from around 1740. Favorite city in the world? Venice. Ah, Venice. What celebrity would you have narrate your life? Mmm, that's a good one. Orson Welles. Oh, okay. Out of all pop stars, who is the best musician? Pop stars? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm told Lady Gaga is a, a concert pianist. Oh. So I would think, you know, her, with her uh, training on that, I would see, think she is. Uh, first thing you would do if elected president? Me? Yeah, you. Um, if I elected pre- president, I'd get rid of all politicians. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite food? Favorite food, it's between pizza and hamburgers. Best car in the world? Well, if I was to say, if I want a a car that I would like to have, it would probably be a Duesenberg. A what? A Duesenberg. Duesenberg. I don't know Duesenberg. Well, there you are. Look it up. (laughs) Most successful product you never saw coming? Um, I would probably say all the plastic instruments. I mean, uh, we didn't see them coming. When I first saw them, I was uh, a little skeptical. And I said, well, I don't know. I don't think this is it. And then it, it I mean, we got on board. I, sometimes in business, you have to look past um, your own preferences. And I, we got on board and we sold a lot. But I was very hesitant at the get-go. What is the most frustrating part of running your business? Paperwork. Uh, if you had to start your business somewhere else, where would you do it? When you say start it somewhere else? Uh, move it to a different location. I am moving. You're moving? Yeah, we're moving in about a year. The township's doing an arts village, so we'll be, we'll be moving to the next station stop up 
uh, right away, which would be great because we'll have a, a, a from what we see, what we're going to have, they're going to uh, we're going to have access to a big performance hall that's going to seat 150 to 175. They're doing a lot of stuff in Woodbridge Township, so we're just moving about a mile away. Is this an exclusive interview? Are we the only people that have this? Well, it's been put Say out yes. there. Yes. 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 yes, 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 yes. You want to see the Very plans? Diverse. I got the plans over here. Yes, <laughs> this has been in the works with the township. Very cool. So. Very cool. Well, it was a pleasure speaking to you, sir. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the time. Thank you.